0: Sometimes false dichotomies are created unintentionally, with the best of intentions. But in the world of argumentation, false dichotomies are often presented with malicious intent. This is Greg Hall, and you have found your way back to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Thanks for taking time out of your day to give it a listen. In today's episode, number 72, we're going to be talking about religious false dilemmas, sometimes referred to as a false dichotomy. We're going to look at biblical examples of that. We're going to look at societal, modern day examples of how false dilemmas or dichotomies come into our line of thinking. And like with everything else recently, we're going to end with how that idea has maybe corrupted some of your thoughts about what Sabbath is. But before we get to that, I've got a true dichotomy for you, not a false one. In my history, I have taken several trips to Israel. I actually counted them this morning. I have taken seven trips to Israel in my life. I started taking those trips back in 2004 as part of my master's program. That was my first time. And... Over the years, I have gone on other people's trips, but mostly I've led my own trips. And during the pandemic, everything shut down. Nobody was going to Israel. Tour guides were out of work. Lots of people did not travel to the Holy Land in the last few years. But those trips are starting to pick back up again. And along with that, I've been approached by a couple families that have had interest in traveling to Israel. And so I have put together a trip for next year. February of 2024, I've got a trip to Israel going. And so the true dichotomy, <laughs> the real question I have for you today is are you going to go on the trip to Israel with me? And that is a true dichotomy because you have one of two choices. You will either go on the trip to Israel with me or You won't. Now, within that, I do understand that there may be a whole lot of you that don't know the answer to that proposed question. You may have interest in knowing more about what a trip might look like. You might have questions about your physical safety while you're in the land. And so, what I've done is created a webpage at Rethinkingscripture.com. You'll see right on the opening splash page a link to the information about this trip. I include the price. I include the proposed itinerary for each of the days. And I try to answer as many questions as possible in that type of format. But I'm guessing if you make your way there and you do have some interest, you might have some questions that come up above and beyond what I've stated there. There is a Connect tab on each of my websites, rethinkingscripture.com and RethinkingRest.com, and that is the easiest way to get in touch with me at any given moment of your day. So the true dichotomy that we're starting the episode about false dichotomies about is, would you like to go to Israel with me? I would love to have you on board. We're looking at a group of maybe 20 to 25 total. So let me know if I can add you to people that are potentially interested and then that just gives me the go ahead to hound you relentlessly until you say yes. <laughs> and before we leave the Israel trip, I also just want to mention because some people have this question. I plan on having several class times before we leave in in the months leading up to uh, our departure where I will go through the itinerary, I'll talk about theology, I'll talk about placement in the land what stories uh, you want to brush up on before you get there. Because literally when you get to Israel, if you've been, you know, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. I mean, we are going fast and furious through a land that is so deep with history and stories and theology that if you don't do some amount of preparing ahead of time, you're just not going to get everything out of a trip like that that you possibly can. So we start with a true dichotomy, and now for the rest of this episode, we're going to dive into this idea of false dichotomies, or probably better to say false dilemmas. And some of you are thinking back to that uh, philosophy class or that uh, argumentation class that you took in college that was just so long ago, and you're not remembering all of the logical fallacies that one can make in an argument. We're just going to cover this one today. It's the false dichotomy. And as I've shown, some sets of choices are actual dichotomies. I mean, you've got two choices. For instance, not just Israel trips, but you can either have a sip of water right now or you can choose not to have a sip of water right now. That's a true dichotomy. And to be a true dichotomy, you can't help but choose one option or the other option. In a true dichotomy, you must fall under one category or another. But the problem is, the way we've learned to argue within our cultures is to oftentimes pick our side and then attack what we see as the other side. So in our logic, what we're doing, whether we realize it or not, we're creating a dichotomy And so then the question becomes, is this a true dichotomy? Are there really just two options from which to choose? Or have we oversimplified something? And are we ignoring maybe some possible answers that we haven't even thought of? So sometimes people that create false dichotomies are doing it unintentionally. Uh, For instance, they actually think there's only two options either because they haven't studied something more fully to understand the complexity of it, or they've just been introduced to a concept in a certain way that only allowed for two options. Maybe that's just all the exposure that they've had to it. And they may be well-studied on those two options, but those aren't really the only two options. So sometimes false dichotomies are created unintentionally with the best of intentions. But in the world of argumentation, false dichotomies are often presented with malicious intent. And we're going to take a look at biblical examples of that today. We're going to talk about maybe how that's seeped into our culture. And then we're going to finish because (laughs) I've written a book on the Sabbath. I don't know if I've mentioned that earlier. Uh, We're going to take a look at how maybe a false dichotomy mindset has seeped its way into the way that we've come to view this topic of rest, Sabbath rest. So I'm recording this on a Monday, and yesterday I actually went to a a church here in my hometown and heard a pretty good sermon exactly on the passage that I had handpicked for today's episode. Uh, That just happens every so often. And I'm surprised every time it does, but that's sometimes how God works. Now, the pastor yesterday wasn't talking about false dichotomies. He was going a different direction, and he did a great job. He actually used an example that I'm going to share with you now. He talked about the example of playing chess, and he talked about how when he's been playing chess against his children, that there have been a few times where he thought he had everything cornered into one of two options. And he'd study the board, and he decided, oh, I've got them now. I'm either going to do this move, and then they have to do that, or I'm going to do this move, and that will end in a checkmate for him. And in his example, this has probably happened to you if you've ever played chess, he makes a move and thinks he knows all the outcomes possible, and then very quickly from the other side, an unexpected piece on the board moves into an unexpected location, and his opponent says checkmate. That's just a very practical example, and I thought it was a good one, of a false dichotomy that somebody believed largely because of ignorance. They just didn't know the game well enough to understand that there's more than just the two options that seem to be presenting themselves in front of him. And for those of you that think that this is just a modern-day thing, this has been happening since Bible times. And just a couple examples. Let's go straight to Jesus' ministry. Because if there was anybody in the biblical text where people tried to, on multiple occasions, corner him and pigeonhole him, he oftentimes came up against this type of logical fallacy. So let's just turn uh, to Luke chapter 20, This is where I found one really good example, and it's the uh, scripture that was in the sermon yesterday. This is the uh, tribute to Caesar question. Let me just read chapter 20 in Luke, verses 19 through 26, so we're all on the same page. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him as Jesus that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. What parable is that? That's the one just directly before this in the scripture. It's the parable of the vine growers. You can go back and look at that yourself. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. So they're buttering the bread there, (laughs) and then here comes the question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And because we're on the topic of false dichotomies, I just hope that you listen to that. Let me read it again. Let you recognize it for what it is before we even go any further. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, "Mm, Caesar's. And he said to them, then... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So that's the story. Jesus is approached by these religious leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, and it says they tried to lay hands on him. I think that's different than what happens in a lot of church services, when people are praying, they just wanted to get their hands on him and throw him in prison. That's where they're at. They're frustrated at this point. And what they come up with is this brilliant idea that probably would have worked on most people. Okay. So uh, remember, these are the religious leaders, which just means they're real uh, religious smarty pants of their day. Okay. And they've put this question together. And even though somebody may think there's more than one answer, sometimes when a smarty pants asks a question, you start questioning yourself, right? You start questioning, well, I thought there was a different answer, but they've only posed two possible answers here. So maybe I should just pick one of the two. And maybe that's what they were thinking Jesus would do. Or maybe they were just ignorant enough to not know that there was a third option. And in this case, I'm going to suggest it's malicious intent. Uh, These people were probably not just ignorant. But because of their silence at the end, I honestly believe that they thought he had to pick one of these two answers. I don't think if they recognized a third possibility, the one that Jesus came up with, I'm not sure they would have asked the question the way they asked it or in the setting that they asked it. They were trying to one-up him, and they thought this question was going to be their ticket home. What are the two options they gave? Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? And Jesus takes their two options, and his answer is really interesting. And I get this, actually, from yesterday's sermon. The word that's often translated as render, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That is a word in the Greek language that is pay back or give back. So a nuance of what Jesus was saying that I think sometimes we miss, it's not that Caesar is owed this in Jesus's comment. It's that Caesar has paid this. So give it back to him. Give back to Caesar what he's dished out, in other words. And the same for God. What God has given you, be willing to give back to God. In Jesus's world, in his kingdom, often called an upside-down kingdom, but I like to say his is the right-side-up one, we're living in the upside-down kingdom where we like to take and take and take. And that was the mindset of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Should we take from Caesar and not give to him, or should we be on his side and pay taxes back? Jesus just says, you know what, there is more than those two options. And you're going to look really silly when I answer this question. So false dichotomy, Jesus, very familiar. What kind of a lesson can we take from that? Well, part of it is just this idea of whenever we're presented two options, really the first question we should be asking ourselves before we answer any question Is are those really the only two options from which to choose? And so maybe it's a timeout, and because you don't know what the options are, it's timeout. I'm not going to answer that right now. And the longer I go, especially in this world of theology and answering people's questions as a pastor and, you know, on a podcast and everything else, I become more hesitant to answer any question. (laughs) And more often than not, Uh, You'll hear out of my voice, uh, give me a little bit to think through that and maybe do a little bit of study, and then I'll present to you what I find. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, just after that Caesar question in Luke chapter 20, there's a question about the resurrection. And in this story, it's the Sadducees that come to him and they promote this very elaborate story. Now, there were seven brothers. Well, probably more common in Israel than it is today. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her in the same way. All seven died, leaving no children. And then finally, the woman died. And the Sadducees, who, by the way, didn't believe in the resurrection. That's the whole purpose for the question. They said, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And again, they're just trying to present some sort of a dilemma for Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they didn't even think this was a true scenario. But they've concocted this because they know Jesus did. And so in this false dilemma that they've created, Jesus again goes outside the box and comes up with a response that wasn't even on their list. And he suggested that in the afterlife, that resurrection from the dead that they were questioning people neither marry nor are given in marriage. So (laughs) he just said, your question is moot. And then he went on to prove from the Old Testament scriptures that there actually is a resurrection based on the text that the Sadducees did accept. So getting ready to round out this section, one last one that's very common, and it's a questionable passage, John chapter 8. It's not in all of the copies of the text that we have. But it's the one of the woman caught in adultery. If you remember, they bring Jesus a woman, been caught in the act of adultery, and they basically said, what should we do? The law says to stone her, kind of trying to give him two options. And he said, oh, you're right. Yeah, the law does say that. And uh, it also suggests that the, the people that brought her should start the process. So why don't you guys go ahead and start that? And then people left. There are often, specifically in the religious realm, (laughs) there's often more than just two options from which to choose. And if you've grown up in a tradition on any given topic that really only presented one or two options, usually it's the one that you believe and the one that is exactly opposite of you. We've done a great job of picking fights this way over the years, over the decades. And so it's time to learn. Learn from the Savior. Look at how he handled himself. Now, obviously, he's got a leg up because he's the Son of God, but uh, we have been given his Spirit, and that Spirit may not lead us into the exact words to say to a question, but it will lead us into all truth. The Holy Spirit of God is going to help us understand when we've been given a false dilemma. So false dilemmas, that's what we're talking about today. They can come from malintent, bad characters, but they can also just come from misconceptions and or spiritual ignorance. And the problem is that someone with malintent can pose a question in the form of a false dilemma, and then misconceptions and spiritual ignorance can then propagate a stance that has other options. And we don't just see false dilemmas regarding religion in the Bible. Some of our false dilemmas are challenges by the secular society, but maybe more often than not, they're created by those who are within the Christian faith. So for instance, when I teach in the university setting, most students would tell me that they feel like there's a war between what science has to say and what the Bible has to say. And this is usually day one of class. This is what I bring up. Society is asking the question, do you believe in science or the Bible? But sometimes it's not just society asking the question. Sometimes it's within the Christian faith that that question gets asked. Do you believe in science or the Bible? And this is a false dilemma. We're given two choices, and there are other options. And I really like this false dilemma because It was brilliantly propagated by the 2006 film Nacho Libre when Jack Black's unlikely wrestling partner states, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And that was me trying to sound like him, not doing a real good job. A statement like that, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. That statement alone presents a false dichotomy. Any scenario that makes you choose between those two choices either doesn't understand science or it isn't understanding the Bible correctly, or maybe a combination of both. So we've talked about it. Sometimes people offer a false dilemma intentionally as a strategy to gain an advantage, but sometimes it may innocently seem like there's only two options when a closer examination reveals a much more complex situation. That's true of the science and Bible. If we really believe in a God that created the cosmos, that God also set up the rules in which science has to follow. So do you believe in the Bible or science is a false dichotomy? There's an option where you can believe in both. And it may not be the understanding that we currently have on a particular issue in science or an understanding that we currently have on a religious issue from the Bible, maybe that's our ignorance. Maybe we're just not understanding the full gamut of what the possibilities are. And over the years, It's been religious denominationalism that has really caused people to believe that there are only two options regarding many different topics. This is how this plays out. Denominations will pick a distinctive, something that sets it apart from other denominations, and then they'll go out, I think innocently enough, to prove that that distinctive is true And oftentimes the easiest way to do that is to pick a friendly fight with another denomination's practice or belief. And I say friendly regarding those fights, but historically, (laughs) these disagreements are at varying levels of seriousness. Within the last few generations, disagreements over distinctives could get one removed from church membership. But if you go back further in history, people were labeled heretics, sometimes killed over such disagreements. You want to do something fun someday? If you haven't looked at this uh, in this context before, just do a Google search for what Christian religious leaders were killed and labeled heretics. That's a really long Google search, so maybe you can shorten it up. What you're going to come up with is a list of people that actually lost their life. And then when you read what it was that they were convicted of, not with everybody, but for some of those people, you're going to come to the conclusion that, well, that's what I believe. So what are some of the false dilemmas or false dichotomies that have been presented or propagated within modern day religion? came up with a short list. And these are ones that I've interacted with a little bit more. So, I'm not saying this is by any means complete list. See if I come up with your favorite. Is speaking in tongues for today or have they ceased? <laughs> well, if if you've listened to the podcast at all, you know that that is a much more complicated question than any two answers can solve. What's another one? Ah, does the Bible require or forbid child baptism? Well, the problem is the Bible doesn't say anything about child baptism. So just the way the thing is worded, you're being pigeonholed into a decision that doesn't really make logical sense to begin with. Should we abstain from alcohol or is it okay to drink? Again, a much more complicated question than abstinence or drunkery. And that's oftentimes where that discussion goes. Or how about this one? Are we saved by faith alone or faith and works? What would you say if I asked you to choose one of those? Are you going to go with James or are you going to go with Paul? And why shouldn't there be an option where I go with both James and Paul? There are lots of scenarios where people have sought out to prove one point or another in a doctrine that they— fervently believe in, and sometimes completely innocently. I think we come by a lot of these false dichotomies, honestly. But when I was a pastor, I heard all of those questions that I just gave you at one point or another, and each one creates a false dichotomy. For all those questions, the situation is simply more complex than the two proposed options. And oftentimes, the confusion begins with discrepancies within the definitions within the question. What do you mean when you say speaking in tongues? Is salvation only talking about the point in time of one's initial faith, or is salvation also described as a process that happens over time? So, to begin, a really good place to start is by just clarifying definitions that's usually the first thing that you wanna do. Make sure everybody's on the same page. And if something can be defined differently, oftentimes therein lies the problem. And recently in my book study on the Sabbath, I'll tell you this, the Sabbath has not escaped (laughs) these false dilemmas either. So that's what we'll take a short look at next in our attempt to clarify how this idea of Sabbath rest has sometimes been oversimplified. So we've been introduced to the false dichotomy fallacy, and we've also dipped our toes into that fallacy's involvement into some of the topics of the Christian faith. To finish today's episode, I'd just like to dive, uh, like I said, a little further into the topic of biblical rest, and specifically Sabbath. Have people used false dichotomies, either intentionally or unintentionally, with the result of confusing the idea of Sabbath rest? Well, yes, that's going to be my answer. Yes. Let's just start with some of the questions that I often hear. Is the New Testament Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday? Do I have to put my electronic devices away to properly observe a Sabbath? Do Christians even need to observe a Sabbath? Didn't Jesus abolish the law? And let me just say, for those questions and many more very common questions within our modern Sabbath discussions, they have more options that we've not yet considered. I've said this in previous podcasts, most of the books written today having to do with Sabbath observance assume the premise that the fourth commandment practice of taking one day a week off is the modern day goal of experiencing Sabbath rest. Let me just say that again, because it's commonplace to me, but I want to see if you agree with this premise. Most of the books today having to do with Sabbath observance, they assume that the Fourth Commandment practice of taking one day a week off of work is the modern day goal of experiencing Sabbath rest. Is that what you've been told to believe? Is that where you've landed on rest? Well, there are several false dichotomies hidden within our modern discussions. Like I just said, when someone assumes a day of rest is the crown jewel of Sabbath rest, they've already really decided more than a few things. And let's talk about some of them. Number one, a a one-day-a-week view of rest assumes the Ten Commandments are still applicable today because they are a subcategory of the Mosaic Law that has to do with moral behavior. And let me just explain. Some modern theologies approach the Mosaic law assuming it can be broken into subcategories of civil, ceremonial, and moral instruction. And they've concluded that the Ten Commandments are 100% moral instruction. And therefore, because it falls into that category, the Ten Commandments still apply to believers today. But moderns have segmented the law this way. And by doing so, we are attempting to answer our own questions, the questions we have about how to properly follow God's law. Nowhere does the Bible suggest that the Mosaic law should be broken down into these particular smaller segments. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 15 when the Jewish believers are trying to figure out what part of the Mosaic law Gentile believers should be required to follow, they come up with a list that doesn't include any of the Ten Commandments. So, and it's important to understand that segmenting the law in this way, civil, ceremonial, moral categories, it allows people to ignore the full theology of rest that the Mosaic law presented. There were several other Sabbath laws that God gave to Moses for the people to follow. You you know some of these if you've been hanging around church at all. God gave the ancient Hebrews not just the fourth commandment, but he also gave them additional days of Sabbath rest each year attached to the Jewish festivals. He gave them instruction to observe a year of Sabbath rest every seven years. And every 50th year, they were to observe a second consecutive Sabbath year, and they called that the year of Jubilee. It was a crazy year. I talk about it in my book in a little more detail. In other words, in the Gospels, when Jesus said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he wasn't saying that he is Lord of the practice of taking one day a week off of work. I mean, I honestly believe if Jesus was here in the studio today, I'd say, hey, Jesus, because we're kind of informal like that. And I'd say, what'd you really mean when you said you were Lord of the Sabbath? I think he would suggest that he was claiming to have a unique role over everything the Mosaic law had to say on the topic. Now, That just sounds obvious when I say it that way. Of course, Jesus was talking about the whole theology of Sabbath, but because we've decided to segment the law the way that we have, when moderns read Jesus's claim, they think he's talking specifically about the fourth commandment. They're viewing it differently than people would have in the original context. Lastly, let's talk about that false dilemma when we start talking about the Mosaic law being fulfilled. Some people say that because the law has been fulfilled through Jesus' ministry, that we can just ignore everything within the law, or more particularly, in this case, regarding the topic of Sabbath rest. The logic would say that if the shadows of rest within the Mosaic law have been fulfilled— then we don't have to pay attention to that idea of Sabbath anymore. But that's a faulty understanding of what it means to fulfill something. The Mosaic Law, specifically the pictures of Sabbath rest within the Mosaic Law, they weren't anything in and of themselves. They were shadows. The New Testament tells us this. They were shadows pointing to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the one that has theological substance when it comes to the topic of rest. The shadows give a rough outline. They have some characteristics that would point you in the right direction, but they are not the end game. Had they been the end game, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. And we recognize this with other parts of the Mosaic Law animal sacrifices in and of themselves didn't do anything they were a placeholder they were sufficient for their time but when jesus came he fulfilled that ministry therefore we no longer have to do the repetitive sacrifices found in the old testament because a once and for all sacrifice has been made that same line of reasoning though flows into the idea of sabbath rest are there any repetitive pictures of rest in the Old Testament? Well, of course there are. They're all repetitive. Every week, every time a festival comes up, every seven years, every 50th year. They're repetitive, and their repetition suggests that they're not able to solve the problem on their own. And in the same way Jesus' once-and-for-all sacrifice took away the sacrificial system in the Old Testament— Whatever it is that Jesus is offering regarding rest, the thing that he claimed to be the Lord of, the thing that he said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to him and he will give it to you. That rest is a once and for all fix that doesn't just play into a weekly rhythm, but it becomes a daily existence, much like our salvation through his sacrifice. When it comes to Sabbath rest, the Mosaic law was only always trying to remind humanity of the original day of ceasing that we read about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In other words, the fourth commandment is not a repetitive extension of the original Sabbath day. It's only a shadow of that idea. The original Sabbath day inaugurated God's rest— And the ancient Near Eastern culture understood that as beginning his rule over the cosmos. The seventh day of creation was the beginning of that restful rule. And that rule has never ended. It's an ongoing reality. God entered his rest and remains in that position, in that role to this day. So, segmenting the Mosaic Law into civil, ceremonial, and moral categories— While it can be helpful for some conversations, what it does is it creates unnatural categories that cause us to see the fourth commandment as separate from the other Sabbath extensions within the law. We have largely lost the perspective that the whole picture of rest within the Mosaic Law was supposed to give us. And that segmentation allows us to give undue importance to that commandment and possibly ignore what Jesus's fulfillment of the law really means for believers today. Now, this is going to be a paradigm shift for somebody. Jesus's fulfillment of the Sabbath didn't move it from Saturday to Sunday. And any variation of that logic just distracts believers from more important conversations about what rest is. It was on the sixth day that God ceased the organization of the cosmos. He had set up an organization and a structure within which the creation would function at its best. And he finished that work. And his ceasing on the seventh day memorialized that work, and it told humanity that they were to trust him and play the game of life utilizing his organization and structure. And when we do we experience the rest that he offers. That's what true Sabbath rest is. And I've said it before, the longer that we assume that the two options we put on the table are the only two ways to think about Sabbath rest, the longer our false dichotomies will distract us from the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. Well, how'd we do? We kind of tackled the religious false dilemmas, false dichotomies. We've looked at it from several different angles. If there was really one takeaway, uh, not just about Sabbath, but just about this line of reasoning that has infiltrated a lot of our thinking, I think let's just plan on slowing down a little bit. And when somebody poses a question, let's not feel like we need to have an answer. I mean, yes, we need to have an answer for the hope that lies within us. There's no question about that. But false dichotomies put us in an awkward position. And if we're not familiar with the question or the possible answers, spitting out some sort of uh, Jesus love the Bible, one of those answers, well, it may have worked in church, but it may not always get you to the right end. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate the time that you invest every time you click on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Why don't you think about somebody in your life that could use a good listen to today's episode. Give them a call right now. Uh, Forget that. Nobody calls anybody anymore. Send people a text, or for that matter, (laughs) send them a fax. (laughs) And tell them about the Rethinking Scripture podcast.